Back in Copley Woods, Kathy was awakened one night by an awful scream coming from the children's room. Her son Robbie was lying awake, looking shocked. When Kathy told him he must have had a bad dream, he replied, Mommy, this ain't no dream. He told her that a man with a big head had come in through the wall and went into her closet and he wouldn't let me move. The man told him that he wanted his brother Tommy. Assuming he had been dreaming, Kathy pulled the bedclothes over him and he went to sleep. But as she lay there in bed watching television, she saw a small grey-skinned figure walk straight past the open door. He appeared to be coming from the children's room. That chilling excerpt is from Bud Hopkins' 1987 book, Intruders. Released the same year as Whitley Stryber's influential book, Communion, and spawning a TV movie slash miniseries that was broadcast just a year before the debut of The X-Files, Intruders remains a key artefact in the history of the development of UFO lore. In particular, it massively popularised the idea of UFO abductions. Many of the tropes we now associate with these stories appear together in a refined form for the first time in this book and film. Coming at a time when the UFO scene and the paranormal in general were beginning to become quite dark and conspiratorial, the Intruders TV movie remains a powerful, chilling and overall convincing watch that makes it clear just why this phenomena was about to become the dominant motif in UFO lore. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods located somewhere in Wild West Cork, I investigate stories of hauntings, monsters and UFOs, seeking out primary sources whenever I can, and always remaining critical but not cynical. It's a still quiet night in the forest outside the cabin, perhaps one of the last warm nights of true summer. The stars are out. Somewhere in the distance I can hear a train thumping over the sleepers on its way through the night. It's the kind of night that makes you believe that anything could be out there, even Bud Hopkins intruders. Joining me for this episode is not, as you might guess, a Bud, but in fact a black bottle of Guinness West Indies Porter. Not my usual micro-brew style for sure, and Guinness certainly don't need any help from me, but it's a real treat all the same, a thick sweet porter with notes of toffee and chocolate. Just the thing. Grab yourself a drink and get ready for this episode, Bud Hopkins Intruders, How Alien Abductions Became So Popular. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi folks, so welcome to the cabin, or rather the forest outside the cabin. Um, yeah, nice warm night. I'm really, really pleased to be able to sit out and do this episode. I don't think I'll be able to do that for a whole lot longer. In the distance, you might be able to hear the wind picking up. We've had a lot of storms recently, and I can kind of hear the distant hum of traffic somewhere. But uh, hopefully we'll have a quiet enough occasion for a, a spooky story and a bit of an investigation into the subject of UFO abductions and Bud Hopkins intruders in particular. What I'm going to do is kind of go through the film bit by bit 
and talk about the links it makes to the, the supposedly true story from Bud Hopkins' book, and also talk about its larger influence in UFO lore and wider culture. So we are talking about something, that the idea of UFO abductions that became really massive and became really mainstream round about this time, having repercussions that go far wider than just the UFO world. But firstly, I have a few shout-outs and a few recommendations uh, from interesting things I've seen, interesting conversations I've had this week. So firstly, Alison Jornlin has a new series on YouTube called Paranormal Women. We talked about Alison Jornlin last week on our Mothman episode. She did that great reporting on the 2017 Mothman sort of spate of sightings. This show is about women who've sort of been sort of written out of the history of like paranormal writing and investigation. There is one episode up at the moment about Zora Neale Hurston, which I found really interesting. I, I never knew much about her. She's a, a writer who did a lot of kind of research into the zombie phenomena in Haiti back in the 1910s and 20s and sort of never really got the cred that I think she probably deserved. So it looks like a really interesting series. I look forward to learning a lot more about um, similar topics. And also, it, the the person who sort of got the credit for that story, who the person who kind of came up with the idea that, you know, the zombie phenomena might be the the use of some sort of drug, uh, was usually, it's usually said to be Wade Davis, but decades later. So Hurston is kind of taken out of the story. Wade Davis does seem like a decent fellow, from what I can tell. I did work with a guy once in Ontario who went to a university where Davis either lectured or spoke, and uh, always spoke highly of the man. What else? I also had a great chat this week on Twitter with Hookland. If, you, if you're following me, you probably know them. But just in case you don't, Hookland is a sort of a... It's a Twitter feed. It's a website. It's a series of sort of imaginary books from an imaginary English county in some imaginary time. And it's all about folklore, uh, folk horror. It's all about that weird period in the 70s and the 80s where books and TV just had a real high point for the strange and the paranormal. It's, it's a real labour of love and tremendously popular online. All the right people are interested. We had a great chat this week just because, um, as you probably know if you're into that stuff, um, the folklore community is really wonderful. There's always a few bad apples and there are a few people who are interested in it for reasons that are less than savoury, shall we say. There are people who are, are kind of hung up on the, the racial angle or the historical racial angle. So Hookland is one of the people doing really good work to uh, highlight that those problems and separate the good stuff from the bad. So he's into the, the, the folklore against fascism stuff, which I wholeheartedly support. And um, yeah, absolutely on board with that. I think folklore is for everybody. I think anybody, even tangentially associated with it, should be doing everything they can to make it as inclusive as possible. And honestly, as a an amateur, just an amateur fan, amateur researcher, um, all the stuff you'll hear about people obsessing over the racial backgrounds of this stuff is is ahistorical nonsense and doesn't stand up to even the smallest scrutiny. So important stuff there. Oh, I also want to recommend a podcast that I found this week. It's an audio drama called In Another Room. I have no affiliation with the company. I think they're called Violet Hour, but it's a it's a classic haunted house story. If you're a fan of Shirley Jackson, Haunting of Hill House, if you like that book or the Netflix show, I'm a big fan of Richard Matheson's Hell House, as problematic as it may be. But to me, those are like some of the classic Ur haunted house stories. In Another Room is a great haunted house story 
It really shows what the medium is good for. And having tried an audio drama episode recently, that's our Dawn of the Wild episode about Bigfoot, it's a tough medium and it's a lot of hard work and in another room just really makes excellent use of the sound, the, the making you feel like you're in a physical space and the things they do with sound are absolutely incredible and it is genuinely, genuinely scary. So if you're if you've got the time and space to listen to it on earphones in a, a you know, by yourself or on a walk or you know, somewhere a bit secluded, I genuinely recommend that one. It's a great, great classic haunted house story in the style of those books that I mentioned. Uh, speaking of my own haunted house story, I do have some photographs of the haunted rectory in Kerry that I visited last weekend. They are on my Twitter, so I just thought I'd mention that. It's a beautiful building. I don't want to mention where it is exactly, but uh, the pictures are definitely worth a look. So check us out on at Strange Ireland. And I'll try and remember to reload that tweet so it's close to the top. But have a scroll about all the other fun stuff we do. And as always, we're we're welcome uh, people to have a chat with us on at Strange Ireland on Twitter or over on Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast and we love a little bit of interaction. Uh, the podcast has been nominated for an award, the Cork Digital Marketing Award. So that's really fun. I think the, the category was for online content. So huge shout out to everybody involved in that. Uh, it's nice to be on the ballot with lots of other local companies here in Cork. And we're excited to see uh, where that goes. Lastly, I have a couple of shout outs to folks who said nice things about the podcast online. So we had a nice comment on Twitter from Mr. Barry Shepherd who is a host of History Now on NVTV, which is based out of Belfast and does really, really good historical analysis. It's quite, I find it academic, which I love, but it's also very accessible. So they're getting, there's some really good people involved in that and uh, some friends of friends, I believe, are involved in it as well. I don't have time to go into that now, but it's worth checking out and I'll put a link to it. Barry said, uh, congratulations on the award. Your Joe Rogan and Chris Jericho episode was fantastic which is lovely. Thanks, Barry. Um, yeah, I thought it was going to be a controversial one. Um, but as always, my, my good brother, Donal, uh, keeps the conversation, you know, accurate, on track. And a major shout out to him as well. That episode has proved very popular. So go and check that one out. That's myself and my brother, Donal, kind of talking about the the responsibilities that we feel podcasters should have when dealing with, um, let's say, esoteric subjects. Also, Mr. Mark M over on Facebook left us a really nice one. He said, Kean is a great podcaster, amazing and informative content with an intelligent perspective on horror, sci-fi, paranormal, environmental, etc. I like that he mentions the environmental. I should do a little bit more on that. But do check out our episode about environmentalism and conspiracy thinking. Covers all the topics from the perspective of an educator and enthusiast and was especially interested in the discussion with your brother on uh, right-wing subjects. So again, yeah, that's probably the Joe Rogan, Chris Jericho episode. Go check it out. So that's all of my house cleaning done for now, housekeeping. Let's get started on Bud Hopkins and Intruders. So let's talk about Alien Greys. I was genuinely a little bit scared of Alien Greys as a young fellow. There, there's something horrible and creepy about them. The whole idea of alien abduction is very invasive. It's about your personal space being invaded, being intruded upon. And there's something really horrible and creepy about them. They don't speak. 
they they're cold and calm and clinical they have big black eyes and you don't know what they're thinking we did a couple of episodes with chris bookie joyce historically about where this idea comes from in culture and it's too long to go into here if you're interested check out our two episodes called the coming of the greys but if i had seen this movie this tv movie intruders when i was a kid it would have absolutely scared the shit out of me no questions asked this is an incredibly effective way of putting this story out there and i i have a lot of good things to say about this this particular show so who was bud hopkins and who was kathy davis who you heard about in the intro bud hopkins was an american artist an author and ufologist this is important he was not trained in psychiatry or hypnotism or anything like that, although he took an interest in all of those things. He was primarily a New York-based artist, and he was quite successful. He had uh, he had high-up jobs in the New York art world. He was well-connected. He was well... Um, well, he was awarded and had quite a career in that. So he wasn't... He wasn't like, you know, a guy who was painting houses or something. He was a guy who had a going career, but slowly kind of got sucked aside into this whole UFO thing. And part of his origin story is that when the the TV movie, The UFO Incident, which is a a fictional telling of the Betty Barney Hill case, when when that film was made in 1975, Bud Hopkins had a neighbor who saw this and like the next day was, was, was convinced that he too had seen a spaceship. Bud Hopkins spoke to him about this and eventually investigated the case and came to believe that the hills had been um sort of you know that these their memories that had been dragged up about the ufo abduction were false because they came out during hypnosis and bud hopkins was to become very associated with the this whole concept of hypnosis as being a way of recalling memories specifically linked to ufo abduction cases if you've seen the 2009 film the fourth kind that's a more recent version of the same idea a lot of the stuff that happens in that film would be taken from the the sort of cultural ideas that were laid down by bud hopkins it's not a great film but i like it i've seen it so many times that i think i overlook its flaws it's beautifully filmed and i would absolutely live in the fictional version of that alaskan town in which it's set but that's by the by so um but hopkins writes a book in 1981 called missing time missing time of course is a key part of ufo lore if you've ever seen the first x-files series Mulder, as a as a paranormal buff gets incredibly excited when they have a potential ufo encounter and he checks his watch and he sees that there's time unaccounted for so you know this is 1980 1981 when this book comes out a few years later, he uh, he receives a letter from a woman who he calls Kathy Davis. Uh, I'm going to call her that too. Her real name is known. It doesn't matter. We don't need to go there. There's nothing to be gained from that. I'm just calling her Kathy Davis as well. So she sends him a letter with photographs. And the photographs show what she believes to be physical traces of a UFO landing on her property. And she lives in a place called Copley Woods which is outside Indianapolis. Now, I've been looking at the site and the location. It looks reasonably rural. Um, it's, it's not what I'd call remote, but, you know, houses that are well separated, there's a bit of space or a bit of woodland between them. So I, for me, isolation 
is a key part of stories like this, whether or not they happen in an isolated place or whether they can happen even in suburbia uh, or even in a big city, as we'll get to at the end of Bud Hopkins' story. But she has an incredible story and he starts hypnotizing her. He meets her, he starts hypnotizing her, putting her under to recover more information about her memories and eventually spins this incredible story about how she has been repeatedly abducted over many years beginning when she was a child, when she was six or seven years old. And it, it ties into this very large convoluted story where her and her sister and her mother and her son all get abducted as part of some, what, what appears to be some kind of long-term scientific program being run by the aliens or whatnot. And she describes them as being pretty close to the what are now the classic greys with the, the skinny little aliens with the big heads and they're bald and they have big black eyes. What later becomes immortalised by the X-Files. If, if you're anywhere near my generation, that would be the primary place where you where you know your alien greys from. But yeah, this is an important film because, and an important story because it kind of sets this template in place just a year before the X-Files actually happens. So the Kathy Davis story is very convoluted, but it's got to do with eventually what turns out to be an alien breeding program. She has a pregnancy that then goes away. She suspects that the aliens have maybe impregnated her and then taken the, a the, the fetus out again and all of that sort of thing. So, and yeah, like part of this literally multi-generational complex story. And it goes to a lot of strange places and the book itself is very convoluted. The film tidies all of this up a little bit more so that's why I'm going to use the film to talk about this phenomena. Now, the 1992 TV movie uh, directed by Dan Curtis, it stars Richard Crenna, the wonderful Richard Crenna, Daphne Ashbrook and Mare Winningham based on the book, a screenplay written by Barry Oringer and Tracy Torme. It's the version I've seen, this is on YouTube actually, is about three minutes 40 or it's about two hours and 40 minutes and this is your spoiler warning folks i do recommend this film it's good it's fun it's scary and um, it will really make you realize you know holy shit this is why people took this stuff seriously because the film i found anyway is that effective if you're susceptible to this sort of thing if you think that alien abductions are nonsense and they mean nothing to you and it's rubbish then maybe it won't but if like me i grew up reading books like um, intruders when I was probably too young to handle it and this stuff resonates with me on a very deep level so yeah I'll put a link to the movie in the show notes if you think you can tolerate early 90s made for tv movies if you have a high tolerance for that sort of thing for these kind of movies that just feel a bit old-fashioned and you think you will go and watch something that long I advise that you do so because I'm going to spoil the hell out of it here that's your warning. I'm going to give you another warning as well. As you've probably guessed, the film deals with some fairly icky topics. We're going to, you know, there's there's abortion and there's reference to child abuse and there's sort of abduction stuff. And um, it's, it's pretty grim in places. I'm not going to get into any nasty details, but we will be mentioning that sort of thing. So if, if that's not what you want to be hearing about in your day, hey, that's fine come back to us another time we have plenty of other great episodes i encourage you to check out but yeah let let that be your your second warning so 1992 pre x-files but leading into it we have people like bill cooper writing a books like behold a pale horse which i think was 1991 
and he's kind of mixing ufo lore with more mainstream political conspiracy stuff the whole ufo world is becoming darker and more conspiratorial you have in 1987 the same year the book comes out you have whitley streber's communion which if you don't know it yeah, you, you you definitely know the cover it's it's one of the first really good artistic versions of the classic alien gray head uh, google that if you haven't seen it very influential cover and was also made into a film uh, starring christopher walken which has its moments but is absolutely daft and christopher walken gives an insane performance and he it's a he's nuts before the aliens even abduct him so it's kind of hard to know whether to really recommend it or not that i would say that's for hardcore fans hardcore ufo nuts who really really want to know the whole history of of the genre whereas intruders i recommend for more a wider audience providing you can deal with the the length of it and the sort of old-fashioned nature of it so yeah so that's the era we're in and that's why this movie takes off so much so let's get into it things start with a bit of government cover-up we're at cheyenne mountain in colorado which is a real military base it's like an underground bunker built into the side of a mountain and it's one of those places where the the military or the government would go in the event of some kind of large-scale nuclear disaster or attack um so it's a realistic place where stuff like this would happen it it has got like on it's portrayed as this giant base with underground trains uh, you know taking military guys from place to place which I think it does actually have. So we, we see that they're tracking UFOs on radar, and uh, one of them says, we have a confirmed angel. So I- I- implying that this has happened before, right? And, and the military or the Air Force has got a name for this situation, so that this is an established cover-up. Immediately, one of the higher officers starts telling everybody, no, this never happened, you never saw it, it's a meteor. So immediately we have implications that one these are physical craft that can be picked up by radar and two the military are already well aware of them and there is a cover-up in place and there's this is the first time we hear the the kind of signature chilling three note synth piece of music which is used liberally through the show and really really spooky and effective every time they use it it's kind of like a which makes it sound cheesy but it's it's good when they do it we then cut to one of our two main characters, a woman named Mary. She's in somewhere in rural Nebraska and she's wandering uh, on the roads at night and she's wearing a nightdress and she's disorientated and she goes into one of those those fabulous greasy spoon diners that I love in rural America where the waitress is topping up your coffee all the time. And uh, she's yeah, she doesn't know where she is. She's been through some pro- traumatic process. Uh, a policeman takes her home. And she's 30 miles away from where she lives and she can't explain how she got there. So something weird has happened to her and she sees some flashing lights as they're driving. It's just a traffic stop or something. And it gives her, it makes her kind of freak out and she's having a a relapse of some trauma. So we then cut to Venice in Los Angeles and we meet our other main character who is uh, Leslie. Mary is, is like, is the country character and she's like a little bit kind of homely and then Leslie is like the more slightly more glamorous LA city character. And and both of these women are like they have elements of the Kathy Davis story. So Kathy Davis in the book has been split into these two women for reasons that uh, we'll get to eventually. I think from a from a screenwriter point of view it made sense to do this, but you'll see why in a little bit. So Leslie is also having weird 
things happen in her life and um, she's trying she's going to sleep at night in her venice apartment and she sees crazy lights coming in at night time and she looks out the window and there is what appeared appears to be a bunch of telephone repairmen uh, and their vehicle starting some work in the middle of the night outside her house but she calls the telephone company and they say no no there's nothing happening and this is something that comes from the book because in in intruders with Kathy Davis's story quite often the the aliens are intruders they do this weird thing where they try and cover up who they really are there's a there's a bit where Kathy Davis wakes up in the middle of the night and drives to a local you know 24/7 corner shop and goes inside but then she realizes the guy behind the counter isn't really a human and the shop is really a ship so they do all this kind of like pretending to be something normal but kind of screwing it up by being creepy and weird at the same time so the telephone repairman story kind of comes from that we then cut to a psychiatric hospital which i think is somewhere else in california probably still la and we meet a dr neil chase who's played by the wonderful richard krenner who is richard krenner he is colonel troutman from the rambo movies not only that but he he has earned my eternal gratitude by taking the absolute piss out of himself in Hot Shots Part 2, where he plays pretty much the same character as, as Colonel Troutman. So he's Rambo's, Rambo's old commander, and uh, he plays the same role in Hot Shots, where he says that stupid joke about, Topper, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there were three bears. And he is, I would say, mostly a character actor, but he, this is one of the only times I've seen him in a leading role anyway, and he's brilliant. He really sells it. So he's he's a psychiatrist in this hospital and he's he's like A1 leading man stuff. He's compassionate. He's brave. Um, he does all the right things for his patients and he's held back by the system that's around him. All classic American movie leading man stuff. He's also an expert in PTSD, which is going to come in useful later on. I want to make a distinction here that this character is basically supposed to be Bud Hopkins but he's a real psychiatrist. In reality, as we've learned, Bud Hopkins was a, a New York artist who was just had an interest in psychiatry. So the film is changing things up a little bit to kind of make Neil Chase's accomplishments seem more real, more likely, and making him into somebody who we would trust. So keep that in mind. Anyway, we hear uh, Leslie telling her story to dr neil chase about the spooky nighttime telephone repairman and she says they have no faces so the the repairman thing is just a facade it's like some kind of fake to hide the fact that they're really creepy aliens and and she experiences a bunch of missing time there we go we've name dropped uh, another bud hopkins book and she's really upset while telling this story and i just want to mention this film takes this material incredibly seriously and there's there's really, really deep themes of PTSD and, and trauma, and all of the actors really sell this. They never treat this as something that's hokey or creepy. And again, I think if I'd seen this as a kid, I would have been very disturbed by it because all of the trauma seems very real, and it's very reminiscent of people who have gone through real, real traumatic situations. And like I said, we will have mentions of, you know, sexual abuse uh, or war trauma and and stuff like this and it's very close to the bone and you could argue whether or not that's tasteful or not and we'll get into the differences between how the film portrays this stuff and you know how bud hopkins did in, in real life but 
yeah, the, the film is, is taking all of this very, very seriously. We then cut back to Mary, who's out shopping back in Nebraska, and she has a sudden massive nosebleed. She goes to a doctor to get it checked out, and he pulls something out of her nose that appears to be a sort of an implant. Now, alien implants are a big part of Bud Hopkins' work. He mentions this several times in the book, and Kathy Davis has various unexplained scars and items in her body that Bud Hopkins interprets as being potentially alien artifacts. This is not unique to him, but it's something which has shown up again and again in UFO lore and was always a big part of the X-Files sort of overarching alien conspiracy mythos. The idea that many of us here on Earth are carrying little, little, you know, electronic things inside our bodies that allow the aliens to either monitor us or control us or something of that sort. This film is very... It's very subtle. It doesn't go out and out. It really It's a long show, so it's allowed to take its time. It focuses more on the human reactions to these weird things rather than the weird things themselves, and that only makes it more effective. We then cut back to Leslie in Los Angeles, and she's working in some kind of antique shop, and she has a... <clears throat> she has a bit of a moment when her colleague brings over a, a large painting of the the god Pan, the Greek god Pan, surrounded by, you know, various forest creatures, one of whom and, and sprites and goblins and, and spirits, one of whom reminds her of the alien Grey, so she has a kind of a flashback and becomes upset. Interestingly, if if you know your UFO lore, you'll know that people like Jack Vallée who wrote Passport to Magonia, wrote extensively about connections between UFOs, abduction cases, and classical sort of fairy tales and folklore, and that the idea that you could be taken away by strange little men has its roots not in science fiction, but in in folklore. And uh, if you're up on your Irish mythology, stories of changelings and the little people will, of course, fit into that. I don't know that this film intended that. I think the the pan might have been just a coincidence because they just needed a, a painting that had weird little sprites and goblins in it but pan himself as being as being a, a sort of a figure of the wild a figure of the unknown a figure of the other world as as, as he was reinvented in sort of edwardian times particularly and by people like arthur Macken in in his book the great god pan which is worth a read by the way uh, I yeah I mean it's it's hard for me not to see those connections whether or not the film intended it people in paranormal circles certainly have and continue to make those connections we then cut back to Leslie at home and she has another another weird moment where a van full of men show up they claim to be doing a geological survey next to her house and she kind of freaks out at them thinking that they are aliens we never learn whether they are or not it could be trying to trick us into thinking that she's just getting paranoid because they're not really doing anything that weird. We never find out. We then cut back to Dr. Chase, who is, of course, our surrogate Bud Hopkins, and he has another patient at his clinic who is obsessed with painting, and he's always painting these same symbols. And we're going to cut back to that later. That is, of course, going to be important. We then have our first hypnosis session where Dr. Chase puts Leslie under and she starts remembering um, one of her encounters with these beings. Now, this film is a little bit ambivalent about the role of hypnosis. It doesn't spend much time, it never shows Bud Hopkins putting anybody under. 
it barely mentions it doesn't mention the word hypnosis until very late and in the first half of the film it almost tries to get around the fact that the 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 women are under hypnosis and i think this is because by 1992 i think it was starting to become obvious to everybody that hypnotizing somebody to get you know recovered memories was not a real thing i think the tide was starting to turn certainly within kind of professional medical circles but even in the wider world i think people were starting to realize this was not really a cool thing memory is far from infallible it's not supposed to be an infallible recording device it's more like a a thing for protecting your ego if anything amongst other things but you know by this point the whole concept of recovering memories had a lot of bad connotations because of the satanic panic in the 1980s which wasn't hadn't run its course yet but was again the tide was starting to turn and stuff like that so I, I wonder if the filmmakers didn't really want to emphasize the hypnotism aspect because of that that could be just my own interpretation there are long hypnotic sections in this film but it doesn't fetishize or emphasize the techniques or the the way in which he puts people under i almost feel as if the writers of the film would rather this hadn't been an element but it was a key element of bud hopkins 1987 book so i guess they were stuck with it so when leslie is remembering this she says all these creepy telephone repair men came into my house and she says they're coming through the walls they then take her onto their ship and she's put down on a table and she can't move they take her clothes off and start doing experiments on her and this really cuts to the core of the whole alien abduction phenomena you know by comparison with lots of other kinds of supernatural belief it is a particularly intrusive and invasive one this is a phenomena you do not go you don't have to go out and look for it you don't have to be in some strange part of the world it comes to you and it comes to you in your most private uh, of locations in your bedroom and and that's one of the one of the reasons this really works as a horror film one of the reasons why i think the cultural meme of of abduction has been so strong for so long and i want to say a little word about sleep paralysis because that has happened to me and it's deeply unpleasant um and that is of course when you wake up but you can't move because the part of your brain that stops you from acting out your dreams is still functioning and associated with it are sort of auditory and sometimes visual hallucinations it's happened to me where i woke up and i couldn't move only a couple of times ever and i always had the feeling a strong feeling that something else was in the room with me now hopkins was aware of this but he was kind of dismissive about it as an explanation for abduction cases but it's very difficult for me to put that one having experienced it i can absolutely 100 percent see how somebody might interpret this in a different light perhaps interpret it as being something more mysterious or something more mystical because it's very profound very galling and very upsetting we now start to see images of the the creatures themselves and they are what we would now recognize as classic x-files greys the the story of how the you know the the concept of aliens became standardized in the form of the gray is too long to get into here check out our coming of the grays episodes for that but skinny guys big head big black guys they're starting to use telepathy to talk to her and one of them who tells her that he's some kind of doctor 
actively puts something into her body between her legs. Now, there's a, there's a key moment here where Dr. Chase starts to wonder whether these stories are evidence of some kind of abuse. So he doesn't, in the film, he, he's very sceptical. He does not jump to the conclusion that this is literally happening, that aliens are really abducting people. And it takes most of the film for him to come around to this conclusion. And it's very effective. It shows him to be a very uh, uh, thoughtful, rational and conscientious doctor and scientist he doesn't take this uh, theory on board until the evidence is almost overwhelming the reality is that bud hopkins sometimes dismissed the possibility that people he was talking to had had actual um, abuse in their life he wasn't he wasn't so interested in the down-to-earth uh, examples of it and and to some people it's incredibly distasteful for him to have done so and i, I completely understand why why that would be the case but without a deeper dive into him and his, his ethics all i can say is there, there's a hint of something here that doesn't sound right to me for sure but the film the film version of him dr chase is far more conscientious uh, perhaps than bud hopkins was in reality uh, mary meanwhile goes to a doctor because she's having more problems with nosebleeds and the doctor says wow whoever did this surgery on you did a bang-up job and she says I, I never had any surgery and the doctor says it's clear to me physically you've had surgery on your nose on the inside of you several times uh, and most recently within the last six months so again we're not seeing a whole lot of the the visitors themselves but we are seeing evidence of of their impact you know from doctors and scientists and people we're supposed to trust and it's very effective leslie then finds out she's pregnant and she's incredibly surprised by this because she's been very kind of anxious and upset for several months and hasn't been close to her boyfriend so she thinks this shouldn't really be possible so we have this unexplained happening again sort of implied to have been done by the by the intruders in some way now mary next gets put under hypnosis and oh we have a great we have a great scene where we finally see some of the tech that the aliens use so She's thinking back to a childhood event um, where she sees the physical ship and it is it's, well, it's great special effects, folks. And it's they only use it very sparingly, but it's very effective. It's uh, All of the kind of regression sequences are a little bit dreamlike, but the tech that the aliens use is very physical. And, and overall, I think the film has a very physical take on what these things are i think we are supposed to ultimately come away thinking these are physical happenings rather than you know metaphysical rather than spiritual or anything else although we'll see how the film ends uh, what kind of note it ends up uh, taking on all of this the physical ship by the way is not the not necessarily the classic saucer shape which was a bit old hat by 1992 neither is it the cigar shape which was pretty popular by this time probably about to reach its apex in um probably by 1997 but it's more like a it's more kind of kidney shaped <laughs> to use a metaphor so chase again remains skeptical uh, even with all this stuff happening he keeps telling his his colleagues in the hospital that he, he would require hard evidence and in, before he took this ufo hypothesis on board and instead he's presuming that these are some sort of delusion based on actual like problems or anxieties or even abuse in, in the women's lives and then 
he's hanging out at uh, basically he, he's always inviting uh, his his patients back to his house for like hypnosis sessions which isn't the most professional but there you go anyway he's such a good guy that when he invites our nebraska witness mary uh, to his house in in california and he lives in a beautiful victorian mansion uh, on a street presumably in los angeles and she has a little boy who's maybe five or six and oh, but our bud hopkins guy dr chase he's just such a good guy you know he he talks baseball with the kid and he's he's really helpful and supportive but then we get an absolutely classic horror movie scene we get the classic scary kid drawing scene where he picks up the kids drawings and he's oh i see you've drawn you know you know players from your favorite baseball team and he's going through the pictures and then suddenly and you you can tell this is going to happen before it happens but the the pictures get scary and suddenly we're looking at pictures of horrible monsters and the music comes in and dr chase is like oh what's this are these real and he's like yes i see them they're coming for my mommy that sort of thing always always a really scary note in any kind of horror film the only thing that could have made this better and more effective is the monsters that have been drawn like the crayon drawings are kind of generic scary monsters but if they they don't actually look like the the alien greys if the kid had drawn alien greys at this point i would absolutely have lost it because these scenes are really effective on me for whatever reason then uh, timmy gets a nosebleed that's the kid and uh, she when the mother comes in uh, mary he's saying oh mommy they came in and hurt me this is all based on on stuff that actually happened in in the book in the in the kathy davis story uh, or at least it's based on stuff she reported to bud hopkins we then get another flashback via hypnosis during a storm this is a really effective scene when she's mary is uh, i think she's in bud hopkins house at this point with her family and she has she's hypnotized and she tells this really dramatic story about as a child with her sister um they were playing in their back garden and they see a kid at the about at the bottom of the garden about their age so they follow the kid and they run out of the garden through the forest and they come out to a lake and there's that spaceship again that weird uh, kidney shaped spaceship really fantastic special effects and the kid turns around and he's got a horrible scary alien face like a hybrid and it's a dramatic moment it's effective it's scary Whew, it's good stuff really good stuff so they're then abducted and they're taken around the ship and again it all looks quite physical but it's still dreamlike um, a sort of nightmare like and i'm going to just read a quick quote from a book i have here this is from the ufo investigations manual by nigel watson and nigel says in his 1987 study of 270 abduction cases folklorist dr thomas bullard identified six major elements of abduction accounts capture examination conference tour otherworldly journeys and theophany which is basically like a spiritual experience now these six elements are common to ufo lore and most of them have been present since the hill case in 1961 but at this point late 80s early 90s they're really being solidified by books like communion and books like like intruders and and, and consequently this tv movie so I just thought I'd mention that there. One of the aliens uh, says to the two sisters um, at this point, or rather says to Mary, using telepathy, you have been chosen like your mother. We will be together many times. So again, the implication here that this is a multi-generational 
process that the aliens abduct people repeatedly over the course of their life uh, and will repeatedly abduct people from the same family over generations this is all part of bud hopkins big idea this is one of the main ideas he brings to to ufo lore at this time and that's all all based on the book as well it's one of the reasons why the original kathy davis story is so complicated and so convoluted because she's constantly over the years she was constantly adding stuff to the story and pushing her encounters further back in time and you know adding new family members into the story people are constantly finding marks on their body or remembering a dream or reinterpreting something some memory they had so i'm not going to try and attempt to tell her story chronologically and that's why partly of the reason i'm using the the film as an example um also it's probably the most accessible version of this story we then get a scene where bud hopkins goes to nebraska to visit the farmhouse out in the sticks where mary lives with her family and we get a nice scene where dr chase is sitting on the porch and this is a beautiful uh, set or scene or house i would love to live in a place like this even even in the corn belt or in the midwest somewhere and have a big old house a lot of space around it and uh, the occasional aliens dropping in and he's drawing a little sketch of the landscape he sees before him and somebody comes out of the house and just casually says oh i didn't know you were an artist and he's kind of like oh well you know shucks well you know i, I dabble <laughs> which i don't know is that an offhanded nod to the fact that the real bud hopkins was an artist and not at all trained in hypnosis or or me- medicine or or psychiatry don't know maybe someone is being a little bit cheeky there anyway the next morning they all wake up to find that there's a giant crop circle outside the house and this is based on the real story as well because of course the very first contact that kathy davis made with bud hopkins was photographs of um, a giant crop circle outside her house or some sort of circular imprint of a giant disc and those can be seen online i'll see if i can find them and put them in the show notes we then get some investigation by dr chase he goes to see if he can find what happened to the nose implant that was taken out of mary and we get a weird scene where he's in a laboratory with a scientist and the scientist is saying that it seems to be designed to mutate it's metal but it changes and mutates at precisely 98.6 degrees which he says is human body temperature and at this correct temperature it grows these little legs and he hypothesizes that it's designed to burrow into the human body Ooh, creepy stuff altogether i really re- i really like this <laughs> this is like very effective use of various different kinds of ufo lore we then get a slightly different strand so if you remember that dr chase has a patient who is obsessed with drawing these weird symbols we now have a conversation with him and a memory from his past it turns out that he saw these symbols while he was stationed as with with the army at a military base somewhere in new mexico because of course new mexico because because roswell and because the aztec crash and because the southwest seems to have a monopoly on ufo crashes and in fact if you read the right literature from that time it's claimed that something like 11 different crashes happen in the state of new mexico or the surrounding desert states there's i guess there's just something in the air an interesting thing about ufo crash lore is that the aliens are almost always portrayed as being kind of weak and helpless they're 
they're crashing non-stop they can't control their ships once they crash they either die or they're they're helpless they get scooped up by the military and they get held in 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 secret bases they don't seem to be like powerful and techy and better than us at anything uh, when they crash in new mexico anyway this fellow telling the story says that while he was stationed in new mexico he saw a crashed flying saucer and and it's a great scene actually when he he comes up over the over the hill in the desert and he sees the crashed saucer it looks to me like it's a classic circular disc saucer but it might be the kidney shaped craft just the the true shape of it is being hidden because of the way it's crashed i'm not sure but he goes inside and he finds an artifact with these symbols on it that he later becomes obsessed with and he finds the crashed et bodies one of them is still alive immediately the military show up and of course they put the they put the cover up into operation because that's what they do he's taken away he's questioned for three days he's made to sign a bunch of paperwork to say that he's insane and he's been in this psychiatric institute ever since and this crash is said to have happened i think in 1973 so again we get this notion that the, there's been an ongoing knowledge by the military about these crashes they have certain information they know more than they're telling us all of that classic stuff which by this point is a, is a long established part of ufo mythology we then find out that leslie has had another sort of encounter with the creatures where they remove the baby from her so this is this is a fairly upsetting scene won't lie they take the baby out of her and it is some kind of they hold it up to her and it's a kind of a hybrid and you, you actually see the fetus in, in close detail and this is all taken from the book this all happens in more or less in, in in the intruders book and yeah we then she's in hospital and they tell her that uh, she's had some sort of early miscarriage and there's some information out there about you know spontaneous kind of false pregnancies and stuff like that it's not something i know a lot about i'm not going to go into it but there are various reasons um how the body can can show elements of of pregnancy when that's not happened that can be connected to stress or anxiety or or various other things but not something i want to say too much about but it, yeah all taken from the book now we then get a character by the name of leech who's this eccentric british guy who's into ufos and it turns out he's a college professor so apart from the fact that he's british this this fits pretty well with another researcher who was big at this time by the name of john e mack so i think that leech is supposed to be kind of an analog for mack and he mack in reality was one of the few people who was an academic who were taking an interest in the abduction phenomena and were taking it seriously and I think that's probably one of the reasons why he shows up under a different name in this story. Oddly enough, the Leech character is a professor of anthropology when act the real John E. Mack was quite high up in his institute for uh, psychiatry, I believe, which is far more on the nose and more relevant, but I guess they had decided they already had enough uh, they already had an important psychology character in there. Interestingly, they have a chat and Mack tells uh, our bud hopkins character maybe these things are not from outer space we don't know what if they're some from some spiritual dimension from some other physical dimension 
The film doesn't really go anywhere with this idea, it just throws it out as a possibility. I wonder if by this point, 1992, the idea that anybody in academia was still saying yes, they are flesh and blood creatures in physical nuts and bolts craft was starting to feel a little bit untenable, but it must be said, everything that we see visually about the aliens in this film make it feel as though they are indeed physical here and now creatures. So <clears throat> we get an interesting scene, I really like this one, where Leech takes Mac and and I think Leslie as well to an abduction, a meeting of abduction survivors. Now this is based on something that Bud Hopkins really did because a couple of years after the Intruders book, he set up what he called the Intruders Foundation, which was like a support network for people who believed they had been abducted. And I've watched videos of their meetings and it's incredibly moving. It really impresses upon you that whatever is really going on, these people are genuine in their belief and they're genuine in the trauma and the emotion that they're feeling. So anybody, I can easily imagine how anybody studying them at close quarters for long periods of time could be persuaded to believe there is something going on here because I do believe that they believe, if that makes any sense. And yeah, the, the emotion is real. And this scene really conveys that very, very effectively. We meet a bunch of different kinds of people from different walks of life. They are rational, they're calm, and they're successful. We meet a stockbroker woman. We meet a guy who's the foreman on some kind of site. And, you know, different people from different ends of the business spectrum. One of them is they all have different attitudes towards the experience as well. And the film at this point doesn't come down hard on one side or another. We have one woman who is very proud that she's been chosen for this for this important um, mission. You know, like they chose me. I'm important. And I personally think this actually subconsciously is a big part of the abduction phenomena, especially in Bud Hopkins iteration of it, where people are people's whole lives are incredibly important to these beings and you know you're like a, a sort of a chosen one who has been chosen for some greater mission but there's another character who is really really upset and disgusted by the treatment he says we're like lab rats they're just testing us we've never consented to this and again you know when you're talking about real trauma real ptsd i mean the word consent is so powerful and so important and it's really interesting to see it being used here. And if you believed truly that you were having your life messed with in this way, without consent, it's a huge difference. Especially you compare this to the contactee movement of the 50s, where people were similarly enjoying all of this attention from, you know, the space beings or the space brothers. But that was, that was consensual. This is not. So it's a very dark, nasty time for UFO lore when this kind of abduction stuff is, is like the main focus so yeah, all these people seem incredibly genuine. We then get a great scene where Chase has to make a presentation to the what, uh, the California Psychiatric Association and he's supposed to talk about, uh, I think, childhood sexual abuse. And then he, he, Leach puts pressure on him beforehand. He says, look, you're the only one who can make this new topic mainstream. You have so much credibility that if you start talking about this, people will have to take it seriously. And we get a scene... Uh, where he, he's about to speak in front of all of these people and his own boss is there and his boss has already made it clear that he doesn't want any of this UFO stuff, you know, coming into his, his, his research and his hospital. And Dr. Chase 
is about to start talking about childhood sexual abuse and then he stops and he says, you know, this new thing has come to me and I have to speak about it. And it's a weird moment for me and it's slightly uncomfortable because he's about to start talking about, you know, sexual abuse, which is real. And instead he starts talking about UFO abduction, which is a little more questionable to be charitable. And within the context of the film, he has enough evidence to show that it's a real thing. That's fine. The reality is, just knowing what I know about Bud Hopkins and how he didn't always want to pursue more practical interpretations of what was going on with the people he he interviewed, many of whom were genuinely traumatized, makes this a little sticky to watch, I will say. Now, Richard Crenna, I think, plays this scene very well, and I, I believe that he, he he's giving it what it means. I, I think this was written in good faith. I think the implication is there that we have discovered this new phenomena all these people are troubled and need to be represented and i think it is being done in in the right mindset it's just you know so many years later it's it's hard to watch without without a wider interpretation of it so i don't condemn but i don't support if you like something that happens immediately afterwards is we get the implication that chase's career is going to suffer because of this and and he, he has to quit his job from the hospital because he's got so many problems from his boss. And this is a real thing that happens to academics when they study sort of paranormal or UFO topics. There aren't many of them, but it's fair to say that, yeah, their careers have suffered. John E. Mack, in particular, who was affiliated with the University of Madison, Wisconsin, he was investigated by, I believe, Harvard, um... Sorry, not Madison, Wisconsin. I'm confusing that with an earlier researcher. He was involved with with Harvard and he was investigated by a a team who were troubled that he was, you know, breaching sort of ethical guidelines by interviewing people who were troubled or traumatized through the lens of UFO abductions, which I have to say is fair enough. I think I would support such an investigation. And he was actually cleared and reinstated. So he did attract some negative attention, but... Um, he seems to have been a, a genuine guy who who did what he could to get to the heart of that phenomena. So, while there's some, again, it all it all it all comes down to interpretation, really, and that's kind of all that's as far as I can take that one for now. To be honest, we then get some classic UFO lore scenes where after the the chat, Chase meets an unnamed general who takes him to a, a fantastic sort of a he's in some kind of digs that look like a victorian gentleman's club there are palm trees everywhere there's libraries behind him he's sitting in a big plush red armchair and he's literally um he's drinking sherry and um he's smoking cigars which is going to become important because this guy is a is a connection to the the inner deep state of ufo secrecy and he's reaching out to dr chase so if, if that's making you think about Deep Throat from the X-Files or the cigarette smoking man, this character is potentially a direct antecedent of that. We might call him the cigar smoking man to make that connection. So he basically says, oh, you know, we don't care when, you know, stupid tabloid newspapers tell stories about UFOs. In fact, we encourage it. And that's interesting to me because it hints at a history of disinformation, which is, of course, a huge element of the current ufo disclosure movement unfortunately it's a huge element of the nonsense q stuff that's going on as well which is very upsetting it 
So it's been a meme of, of UFO study for years. The Benowitz case, of course, show, showed in, in the 80s that there were times when the Air Force literally were putting misinformation into the UFO community. But the general then says, look, that's one thing. It's another thing when a credited, respected scientist or doctor such as yourself starts putting this stuff forward. We can't have that. Very interesting. So... There are hints at a secret government group studying UFOs. He, uh, I mean, it reminds me of Project Blue Book, but then he starts to say that at some point in the early or mid-20th century, they went underground because they had to be secret. And that makes me think of MJ-12, Majestic 12, which is the notion that a secret inner core of the government somewhere is are the true people who are controlling US alien relations and gets into the whole notion of exopolitics which is, is what that sort of stuff is called. MJ-12 was a series of documents leaked to the UFO community about this time, 19, late 80s. Um, I, they're pretty widely regarded to have been a hoax, but it, they've, had a long, they've, had, they've cast a long shadow in the paranormal community, and, and the idea of MJ-12 still lingers on as a kind of a shadow government, secret government, uh, evil ruling cabal what have you when i was a kid <laughs> it, it just makes me think of the the blink 182 song aliens exist where he says 12 majestic lies at the end but uh luckily um, blink 182 never had anything else to do with ufos ever again and they never they never embarrass themselves with that one ever again so the general then mentions the old standard canard of oh we're keeping this secret to prevent panic which is usually what people say when they have to justify these ridiculous conspiracies he then says, join us, right? We want you helping us, and I'll show you things that we know that you could never have guessed, which is a great scene. This is real X-Files stuff. He's implying that the government know a lot more. Maybe they have a lot of material. Classic, classic conspiracy stuff. We then get our sort of, sort of climax of the film. Comes when we cut back to Mary. She's had another abduction experience, and... She's taken up into a ship and she's shown the half alien, half hi half human hybrid fetus, which is in, of course, in a tube of bubbly liquid. And she turns around and sees that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more of them. So we know that these women are in the center of some sort of vast multi-generational breeding program. All of this comes from Bud Hopkins' book, of course. She's then brought... Basically, it's implied that she had also... A baby that was lost several years ago and she's now being brought to to meet that child grown up so a she meets a, a, a child of about three or four who is a, a hybrid who's implied impl implied to be her child and it's, it's very it's a spooky scene it's unsettling but it's also it's also kind of nice and and warm and and, and fuzzy and this mix of emotions comes directly from disclosure i'm going to read a short extract from the book this is Kathy Davis and um, telling us that scene. She had awakened in a place that was all white and that there were several of these little grey guys around her. She was standing up and one of them had his arm around her waist as if to comfort her. At this point, a little girl came into the room, escorted by two of the grey men. She looked to be about four. She looked about Tommy's size. She was real pretty. She looked like an elf or an angel. She had really big blue eyes and a little teeny-weeny nose, just so perfect. 
and her mouth was just so perfect and tiny and she was pale except her lips were pink and her eyes were blue and her hair was white and wispy and thin, fine. Her hair was a, her head was a little larger than normal, especially not in the forehead and back here. The forehead was big, but she was just like a doll. And they brought her to me, and they stood there and they looked at me. And I looked at her, and I wanted to hold her. She was just so pretty, and I felt like I wanted to hold her, and I started crying. Before the grey men took the child away, they told Cathy that she would see her again. Under hypnosis, she was able to recollect how the little grey man, whom she thought of as the child's father, held her hand, and, I feel all kinds of things, sad and warm, and care, and distance, and goodbye, and lonely. I feel lonely too. You know, when he looked at me and held my hand, I got this rush of emotion that I didn't know where it came from. It was lonely and sad and sorry, but love and caring and happiness and satisfaction and guilt all at once. Complicated stuff there. A lot of that makes its way directly into the film as dialogue, and it's uh, the actress plays it off very well. It's it's a very complicated scene, but this is a point at the end of the story when the characters are kind of coming to accept what's going on, and things take a strange turn. That that Bud Hopkins' influence on the UFO scene in general has been one of kind of fear, darkness, and paranoia. The whole intruders and abduction thing is is a is a fairly horror movie kind of scenario but the film starts to turn it into something more positive at this point she she provides us with a weird optimistic tone in in her delivery of that of that little bit of text and her complicated feelings about the child she says that she's starting to believe that maybe these creatures are setting us up for some important purpose and uh, we get a line from Dr. Chase, where he's wondering, he says, I wonder if they're here to to start a new world or to save an old one. Interesting stuff. It does kind of come out of nowhere, but it is it is interesting. And I, I, I feel a lot of religious iconography in this here. The the idea that there is a greater purpose, that some some entity, some beings that are bigger than us, greater than us, better than us, have a plan for us. And even even if we don't always understand what's going on or what it's about, um, there is a reason for it, and maybe we don't need to know that just yet. We just have to trust. We just have to believe. And that kind of thinking has led to some very important positive movements and some very dangerous bad ones as well. So I, I take a little care uh, whenever I find notes like that in any story. So... That is the Intruders movie. What happened to Bud Hopkins after this is worth noting. So in 2000 or 1996, rather, he married his third wife, Carol Rainey, who was a also interested in the abduction phenomena, and she was a filmmaker of some sort. Now, he in 1996 he released a book called Witnessed which is about the, the Manhattan transfer case uh, with a witness he calls Linda Napolitano. Her real name is known as well, but we don't need to go there. Basically, it's a story where a woman was supposedly abducted out of a window um, next to the Brooklyn Bridge in Manhattan, flew across uh, the sky, you know, in front of hundreds of people and was taken into an alien spaceship. And this was supposedly witnessed by the uh, the secretary general of the UN who was driving past on the Brooklyn Bridge and two bodyguards but all this came about because 
but Hopkins received some letters from people claiming to be these bodyguards, but then he could never meet them. And basically, to cut a very long story short, his wife started to get suspicious about this and, and kind of working with him and seeing his process, she lost all faith in his ability to interpret this information correctly. She saw many, many signs of hoaxing and just kind of bad science and misinterpretations and he seemed to want this stuff to be true even when the evidence was not there for it so she she's done a a multi-video series kind of exposing this um after she divorced him and it's not it's not nasty or mean-spirited it does it does seem to be in the context of somebody who just just wants things to be done properly and scientifically and was just genuinely not impressed by the way in which he did things Okay, I have one final postscript to this story about UFO abductions. This comes from a book called From Other Worlds by Hilary Evans. And it's just about a little bit of research that was done in the 1970s about UFO abductions. And it just gives us some ideas about maybe where this this stuff really comes from. So um, in the book we read... In 1977, Professor Alvin Lawson and Dr. W.C. McCall carried out a unique experiment in a hospital at Anaheim, California. Having investigated a number of alleged abduction cases, Lawson was puzzled by various ambiguous indications and suspected that some of his witnesses, though plausible and seemingly sincere, had not actually experienced the abduction they claimed. He wondered how their stories would compare with those concocted by people who were definitely known not to have any such experience. 16 volunteers who knew little of and cared less about UFOs were enlisted. Each witness was hypnotized and given the suggestion that they had been involved in a UFO abduction situation. The subject was taken, step by step, through a stereotype abduction sequence, with only the bare bones of each phase being supplied. Uh, And this matches the, the six elements that we heard about the UFO cases earlier. The subject sees a UFO, they're taken aboard, they see the interior... They see the occupants, they're examined, they're given a message, uh, and they're returned. Uh, At each stage, the subject was asked to describe what they perceived. What the investigators expected was that, quote, we would get garbage from the imaginary subjects, an amalgam of TV, film, sci-fi, and UFO lore from media and myth. We presumed we would thus have a means of determining real accounts from phony ones. No wonder we were stunned when both our first two subjects and most of the rest just had verbal diarrhea all over the hospital room. Because that means there was no difference between real and imaginary close encounters and thus no real abductions. Ultimately, it was all in the mind. Lawson and McCall suggest that what may be happening in a quote real abduction experience is that the witness, triggered by some external stimulus such as a bright pulsating light, combines the stimulus with data from the imagination, memory, or knowledge of UFOs to create an encounter experience so intense that it is perceived as physically real. Uh, The book then goes on to say that though um, the stories are similar, there's a difference between the people who know this is kind of being faked up subconsciously and people who don't. And that difference is emotion. So the people who truly believe they have had a ufo experience react with all of the emotional trauma you would expect from somebody who had generally undergone um, a a horrible occurrence so it's this is complicated stuff i i always return to that study and um you know like i said you want you can watch videos yourself of people who've been abducted and 
you know, the, the emotion is real. The, the memories are real to them. So I don't dismiss anything out of hand, but I try and keep my mind open as to what the various different possibilities might have been. So to wrap up, that was Bud Hopkins and Intruders left a long shadow on the state of UFO lore and continues to, I would say, little grey men and abductions are still some of the primary elements of how UFOs are seen in, 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 in popular culture today. We've no shortage of them in books, films and other kinds of stories as well. So that's it for me. I'm going to wrap things up. As always, we welcome chat, corrections, uh, stories, uh, suggestions for episodes, all that good stuff. Reach out to us on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or over on Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. My name is Kean. This is Wide Atlantic Weird. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.